Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This week has been an interesting week for me personally. It's been an interesting week for us as we kind of uh, continue to navigate everything as a culture. And it's just been uh, one of those that we have been invited personally and uh, culturally into a, a sustained season of difficulty, haven't we? We've watched this week as those that we love and know, <clears throat> those that we love and know have been invited into deep suffering. I don't want to divulge anything particular that's happened, but we go through these seasons in life, don't we? Where we're, we have a, a week where we watch a friend struggle, a uh, diagnosis of cancer. We watch uh, another death in the family, and we hurt with those people. Ever feel like that? We've seen it culturally. We've seen our, our culture kind of invited into more and more wickedness, more and more difficulty. And the question kind of looms in front of us to say, is God good? Is God good in the midst of such difficulties when we see friends suffer, when we see uh, difficult things happen to those we love? Surely he's capable of relieving that suffering, is he not? He's not much of a God if he's not capable of that. But what this text holds out in front of us this morning is not just that God sees the suffering and is capable of relieving the suffering, it's that God actually initiates some of the suffering. God invites Jonah into the sea. In fact, we'll see some very personal pronouns used this morning to describe Jonah's understanding that God is inviting him into the sea. So this morning, as we turn to this, we... We want to give this kind of heading over our time together this morning. And I want to lay, as it were, an argument in front of you. And this is the argument I want to make, is that God gives complication to cause Christ-likeness. That God gives complexity and difficulty to our lives so that he might actually cause Christ-likeness in us. That he might actually initiate some type of change in us. If you and I are true in our theology, we say this all the time, that every man is sinful, that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God, Romans chapter 3, right? We affirm that. Well, that means that all of us have ingrained in us something that is opposite or opposed to God himself. And so God has this, uh, this surgeon-like work to cut out the parts of us that are in opposition to him. That as he's raised us to new life in Christ and he's invested us uh, in, in us, his spirit, that he's going to, like that surgeon, cut out all of the cancerous parts of us and one by one remove those parts of us, as difficult as it might be. See, God gives complication to cause Christ-likeness. And we're going to see this in three different phases. In verses 1 through 2 of what Jody just read, we're going to see Jonah's lesson. He's going to kind of give this reflection after the fact, uh, kind of right up 
at the front door of his uh, poem here this morning. And then from there, we're going to go into Jonah's descent in verses 3 through 6, that Jonah just continues to go downward and downward away from the presence of God. And then finally, we're going to see Jonah's salvation in verses 6 through 10, that while Jonah was on this away from God trajectory, down and away from God, God would be the one to lift Jonah up that he would provide a salvation in a vomiting fish. Isn't Scripture fun? It uses words like vomit, you know. Um, see, this morning we see a salvation that isn't always neat and clean. And sometimes it invites us into messiness and something gross. It invites us to difficulty. And so this morning we have this heading. God gives, his, uh, God gives complication to cause us, Christ-likeness. And I want to start off with this lesson that Jonah gives us in verses 1 through 2. Look at Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you're with me this morning, you have your pew Bible, we're on page 774 in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. See, what we get is something after the fact, right? We get this kind of reflection from Jonah, most likely after he's been delivered from the whale. And he starts off with this this idea of his setting. He's inside a fish Last week concluded with with Jonah being tossed overboard of a ship. Jonah had been fleeing from God's presence as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah got up and went the opposite direction. And so what happens is he's thrown overboard of the ship. He's swallowed up by a great fish, and that's where he is as he's writing this kind of reflection, or uh, he's writing this reflection from this period of time. And so verse 2 tells us that he calls out from his distress. Literally, the word there is tightness. Now, you can just imagine the tightness of being inside a ship or being inside a whale or a fish, right? Uh, some of us get these notions from Geppetto, from Pinocchio, of this giant fish, and like there's room to walk around, and you can hang pictures on the inside of the whale, and there's a writing desk in the corner for Jonah. You know, that's not really what's happening, right? He's inside this fish, and it's tight. He's in this distress, He's in a tight place. Praying from inside an animal has to take on a different kind of urgency, doesn't it? Like imagine that you're inside something that wants to digest you. That takes on a different kind of urgency as we pray. Jonah is literally in a situation beyond his control that if he forces himself out, he might drown. But if he doesn't do anything, he might get digested. And so Jonah just is stuck, as it were. And the only thing Jonah can do is pray. So Jonah reflects on this, and he gets to the moral of the story in verse 2. He calls out from the belly of Sheol, and God hears his wayward servant. Isn't that what it says? It says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is this Old Testament word for the grave or death that Jonah's saying, I called out to you with one foot in the grave, as it were, and you heard my voice. You heard me in my most desperate moment. You see, Jonah sees this situation as if he was almost already dead, and yet God hears. 
In fact, as we go throughout this chapter, God hears Jonah's call from these inconvenient, impossible places. Verse 2, he hears him from the belly of a fish. In verse 6, he hears him from the bottom of the ocean. That Jonah is heard by his God in the midst of his distress. See, this morning there's a reflection here that God hears us when we call to him. In fact, Jonah will start and end with these similar reflections. He starts in here in verse 2, and he says that God hears. And then in verse 9, he says that God saves. God hears and he saves by the prayers of his people. You're saying this morning, that would seem to go without saying, right? Certainly God hears us. God hears us. That's, that's what God does, right? He just kind of sits in heaven serenely as he listens to our desperate prayers. Remember that the idols of Jonah's day were the opposite. That these idols had these kind of limitations built into them. That the idols themselves, they were kind of the god of specific things. They were gods of, of fertility or harvest or war. And all of these gods were kind of beset by certain weaknesses. If you're familiar with like Greek mythology, you have Zeus, who's kind of an angry, uh, kind of, uh, you know, angry god who will strike you down and smite you for the slightest thing. These gods, as they were even in the Old Testament, were flawed. They had limitations. They might not hear you from the bottom of the ocean or from having one foot in the grave. But this God that Jonah cries out to, he hears. See, God hears everywhere. Verse 7 says that he hears from his holy temple. That is, God hears despite our sinful inclinations. Verse 2 tells us that, that God heard from the belly of the fish, describing Jonah's this dire situation. God hears us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. No matter how high or low you are this morning, God hears. God saves. No matter how far away or near you are to God or feel like you are near or far away from God, God hears. God knows. He can save. He has the power to release from your difficulty. Now, Jonah's going to give us a bit more of a description of his circumstances in verses 3 through 6. What is it, in particular, that Jonah is being saved from? Well, look at verses 3 through 6. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped about my head. And at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a, a desperate situation that Jonah is describing. See, Jonah sees this situation, and in verse 3, he attributes it to God. Isn't that what we see there in verse 3? He says uh, there's three personal pronouns used in verse 3, right? He cast him, God cast him into the deep, and that they were God's waves and God's billows. Now remember in chapter 1 that it was God's word that initiated Jonah's flight, that in chapter 1, verse 4, it was God who hurled the storm upon the seas, it was God who sent the fish, and now God is the one who sent the storm and the waves. Jonah is recognizing this. 
So Jonah's correct to see that God is the one initiating these wind and waves that are threatening to Jonah's life. But this leads to a reflection in verse 4. I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. See, Jonah recognizes God's distance, that, that he's driven away from the sight of God. Uh, that Notice Jonah's even passive here. That it's by these winds and these waves that Jonah's driven away from the sight of God. But then Jonah sets his mind on something else. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about while you're drowning, right? I mean, I, I doubt to think that if I were in the midst of my death, the thing I would think about is the temple of God. No offense, I might not think about you either here in the church. I might be scrambling for breath or oxygen or something like that. But Jonah has this presence of mind to think about the temple of God. Now, this is an interesting statement because Jonah is borrowing language from 1 Kings chapter 8. And 1 Kings chapter 8 is the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And Solomon is praying to God as he dedicates this temple in which uh, the holy God of Israel will abide, and he prays this. He says, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his way. I get the sense that Jonah remembers this portion of the Scriptures and is now praying this prayer again to God. He's tapping into this prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple, and he's saying, you will hear me. It's a, a prayer for people like Jonah who are in their sinfulness that God would hear them and forgive them. See, Jonah is sure God doesn't see him but that he, Jonah, will see God's temple. He says, you, I'm driven from your presence, but someday I'll see your temple. Jonah has this assurance that God will hear him in his prayer. This is a bold statement of confidence in God's goodness. Despite Jonah's rebellion, he invokes the words of Solomon to remind God that his sinful rebellion doesn't lim limit God from hearing him. Verses 5 and 6 go a little bit deeper into Jonah's desperation. The waters closed in. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah describes this desperation there's this interesting thing that's happening in the book of Jonah. If we saw it last week, that Jonah kept going down. He went down into the ship. He went down to Joppa. Uh, he was down in the bottom of the ship when the sailors found him asleep. And it's not only down, he went away. He went away from the presence of the Lord. 
And so Jonah's trajectory here in chapters 1 and 2 is down and away, down in, into the bottom of the ship, away from the presence of God. And so what's happening here in verses 5 and 6 is that he continues in this descent. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah's just sinking and sinking and going further and further away from the presence of God. He's driven away from God's sight in verse 4. He goes down to the roots of the mountain. Jonah continues to move further and further away from God's presence until in verse 5 and 6, he finally hits the bottom of the ocean the roots of the mountains, where the bars of the land kind of wrapped around him. This is that moment of desperation from Jonah that he's recognizing, I've got no play here. I've got nothing else I can do. Perhaps some of us have had that feeling in life where we have hit bottom, as it were. There's a, a moment of clarity where we recognize, I have found myself somewhere so far from the presence of God that I don't know what else to do. I have so far pushed myself down and away from God himself that now I am at the bottom of the ocean floor, proverbially. We recognize this desperation. Paul says this. He says this strange phrase in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that we, Paul and his companions, are constantly being given over to death. God is giving his servants over to death all the time. Paul goes on and he describes being whipped and beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, frequently in danger, toiling without food or shelter, and all the while anxious for the churches. See, Paul takes on this suffering because he is Christian. See, the truth is this morning that Christian people are subject to difficulty. Just like Jonah is subject to this difficulty, this hardship because of his own sinfulness, Christian people also will be subject to difficulty. Listen to some of the phrases that Jesus uses in his time in the Gospels. In John 15, he says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the world, you will have tribulation, John 16. In the upper room discourse, Jesus says twice, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Paul tells us in Acts 14.22, he, he goes to this newly founded church where there's been conversions and he establishes elders and he encourages the brothers that it's through many tribulations that they will enter the kingdom of heaven. That time and time again, the New Testament is telling us that the life of the Christian is one of difficulty. And yet we have some today who have the audacity to tell Christians that the life that they lead is one of constant victory. There's a well-known pastor who will uh, blatantly say that when you go to the mall and you pray for the best parking spot, you should expect to get the best parking spot at the mall. Is that why Jesus died? for me to get the best parking spot? It's strange when people portray Christianity as a life of constant victory and blessing. We hear these kind of phrases, come to Jesus and your troubles will melt away. Come to Christ and find God's material blessing for you. 
The New Testament seems to tell us that the following of Jesus is forfeiting of an easy, convenient life. I like to read, kind of a nerd. Talk about an easy, convenient life. I get to read in a study that's very convenient and happy, right? And I love one of the authors is a Puritan by the name of John Bunyan. Now, before I've talked about John Bunyan, and I used the word Paul Bunyan, and it confused most of you, right? Different things, right? John Bunyan was a preacher in the 1600s in England. He was born the son of a tinker. That means that he fixed pots and pans and other things. His book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, records the story of his conversion. He describes that he gave a life of he gave up a life of dancing and bell ringing. Apparently, that was a very sinful thing, bell ringing. And he gradually came back to Christ. What happens is John Bunyan uh, kind of rejects the state church of England in this kind of 20-year period where you could uh, start other kinds of churches in England. There was kind of a religious freedom for maybe 20 to 50 years. And he, he kind of joined the separatist church Then a new king came into power, and uh, that separatism became illegal. But Bunyan and other preachers amongst the Puritans continued to hold services in in these kind of forbidden churches. And so what happens is that in 1660, uh, Bunyan is jailed for hosting uh, church services not in conformity with the Church of England. Bunyan would spend 12 years in prison. Twelve years in prison for being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Said that on Sundays, a friend who was a jailer who had been converted under talking to John Bunyan so much would come and release him to go preach at his church, and he would return after he was done, and they would lock him back in. Bunyan says this, he says, I will stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you inherit a long, long history, a long trajectory of those who have stood faithfully on the gospel and have suffered mightily for the gospel. We don't just inherit a life of ease and wealth We inherit a long tradition of men who have denied themselves to see the gospel preached. See, the religion that promises smooth sailing is not the religion of Jesus Christ. The gospel promises a lifetime marked by hardship and complexity, but an eternity of peace. Did you hear that? The gospel promises a lifetime marked by hardship and complexity, but an eternity of peace. We should anticipate the rough waters that Jonah experienced to be experienced in our own life as God cuts out the cancerous part of us, right? But it's not all bad. We've all listened to sermons and said, you know, the Christian life isn't lived right if it doesn't stink completely, right? That's not what we're saying. See, there's a whole other four verses of what happens here, and we still have yet to get the salvation that that Jonah has experienced in verse 6 through verse 10. 
See, Jonah is going to describe God's saving work in these verses. He's going to unpack exactly what what God did, how God met him in his need. Look at verse 6. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God lifts Jonah up as he hears. First, Jonah says that God lifted him up out of the pit. Where where have we seen pits before in this whole history of of Jewish people? Do you remember pits, where we've seen pits, where we threw Joseph into a pit? Where Jeremiah spent some time in pits? Pits are the worst. They're the pits, right? That's a bad pastor's joke and a dad joke kind of combined all at once. They're a bad situation, biblically, and, and Jonah's describing, you picked up my life from this place of, of just absolute ineptitude. I, I can't do anything to save myself. See, thus far, Jonah's actions have only gone down and away. And what God describes, or what Jonah describes here, is that God lifted up his life from the pit. When Jonah's trajectory was away from the presence of God, down to the depths of the ocean, God was the one who lifted him up, that Jonah could do nothing to change the direction of his life, that Jonah could do nothing to swim himself up to the surface, that he was stuck there, that God had to bring him out of his desperation. Now notice also that Jonah's language in verse 7 is that he remembered Yahweh. Thus, the prayer Jonah gave in summary in verse 2 is is offered here in verse 7. Jonah remembers Yahweh and prays. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So there's Jonah sinking into the bottom of the sea. And as he's praying to God that God would rescue him in his desperation, his prayer rises out of the water, goes up over the sea, and finds its way to the temple of God that somehow, miraculously, God hears a man as he thinks in the bottom of the sea. But it's not just that. It's not just the physical separation that might be there. It's the spiritual separation that Jonah had rejected the word of the Lord, that Jonah went the opposite direction, that Jonah in his sinfulness and hardenedness offered himself to be thrown into the sea, offered himself to death rather than repent. And now here, even in his sinfulness, God hears. Notice the contrast in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Pay regard might mean to protect or guard. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2 that Adam was told to uh, cultivate the garden and to keep it or to protect it. And so here, Jonah is saying that those who guard idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is that when they're at the bottom of the ocean, 
there's no hope that God would hear them. There's no hope that their idols would come and save them. There's no ability for them to be heard in the midst of their desperation. Every time we see that word steadfast love, it's a term that means God's covenant faithfulness. That God is being true to His promise to Abraham and true to His promise to uh, David and true to His promises that He's made through His prophets throughout the Old Testament. He's being steadfast or faithful in His love. And thus, Jonah is saying that God's pursuit is unique to His people with whom He has been covenantally faithful. These idol worshipers have no such claim. They can't claim that their idols will come and save them as faithfulness to the covenants that they've made. Finally, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Notice that uh, Jonah is doing the same thing that the mariners did in the last chapter. Not the Seattle mariners, the mariners on the ship, right? These mariners, they offered vows. They made sacrifices to God when they saw the the wind and the waves die down. They promised themselves to the God of Jonah. And now Jonah responds in like kind. And he says, what I have vowed, I will pay. And then finally, salvation belongs to the Lord. God sent waves and winds after his wayward servant, but God also sends a fish in verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. God is one who causes trouble and relieves it. Jonah sees here that God has saved him, even if he doesn't understand the fullness of his salvation. Right? There's still two more chapters that need to happen here, right? This story isn't finished, and, and Jonah's kind of refinement isn't finished. We're going to see kind of a little hissy fit happen in chapter 4, uh, where Jonah has still some refining to go through. But Jonah's reflection here is, is describing that, that God has saved him in his immediate circumstance, and Jonah might not even understand the fullness of that salvation. He might not even understand what exactly God is saving him to. And so God saves Jonah by this vomiting whale. Can you imagine how bad Jonah stunk when he came out of that fish? Can you imagine the, the, just the visible Jonah, what he looked like? <laughs> Ragged, smelly, awash on this shore. Here's Jonah coming out on dry land. This morning, as we reflect on this passage in Jonah chapter 2, we see that God moves us through these various circumstances to see him as a lifesaver. Like we've already said, God isn't done with Jonah, right? God is going to continue to refine Jonah. Jonah's lessons haven't all been learned. There's two more chapters, and particularly in chapter 4, where God is going to reveal Jonah's heart. See, God uses these difficulties, our worldly difficulties, to highlight our spiritual needs. Now, just follow me on this for a second. Jonah has a problem. 
And that problem happens in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Jonah hears the word of the Lord, and his sinful heart is opposed to the word of the Lord, and so he goes the opposite direction. Rather than getting up and obeying and going to Nineveh, Jonah gets up and goes to Joppa to flee to Tarshish. Something about God's words struck Jonah the wrong way. In this way, Jonah's heart and mind weren't in line with the God that he served. And so consequently, God sent physical difficulties into Jonah's life. Jonah's physical distance from Jerusalem and his proximity to death push him to cry out to God. You see how God does this? Paul tells us that God subjected the world to futility in hope that the sons of God might be revealed, in hope that the creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption, as Romans chapter 8 says. See, it's only in this way that God brings about Christ-likeness as he strips us of our earthly comforts to bring us into a heavenly longing. Imagine it's like a child clinging to a toy that they want to keep so badly, and you kind of pry the fingers off of the toy to remove the thing that they're holding on to so clearly. See, God uses this physical world of Jonah, wind, waves, sailors, and whales, to bring about spiritual vitality in Jonah. The Bible describes that you and I have two natures. There's a graphic that would describe this for us here this morning. I think, maybe. There it is, right? You can see that you have this holy nature as we've been redeemed and restored and renewed in Christ, that uh, we, we have the Spirit inside of us that is creating these godly desires for godly things. And yet we still have this unholy part of us. Now, it doesn't just happen in the legs. The diagram might be confusing that way, right? But notice that both of these have an opposition. As we go to the next slide, the holy part of us is opposed by the world. We've seen this in in the book of John as we study the book of John, and we'll see this as we continue, that uh, Jesus is opposed because he is right with the Father. And the people that he ministers to are not right with the Father, and so they reject him out of hand. And so the holy part of us is opposed by the world. The more you press into sanctification, the more you uh, talk about Jesus and your faith in Jesus, the more you will find yourself rejected by the world in which you live. But there's another part of us that's opposed by God himself, the unholy portion of us, the, the part of us that's still not sanctified, that, that God has to actually bring about circumstances in our life from time to time that would expose those parts of us, that would bring those desires, those uh, false desires to the surface. See, we still possess the sinful nature that that Romans 7 tells us that there's conflict between the old nature and the new, that Galatians 5 tells us that the Spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh and vice versa. And when we try to push that flesh aside, the world combats against us. But when we push into the holiness that, uh, that God has for us, we're rejected by the world. But when we stay there, we're rejected, not rejected, but pressed against by God. The best way to see this, though, is in reverse, in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus died as an expression of both worldly rejection and his acceptance by his heavenly Father. 
See, just like we might be defined by this diagram that we have this sinful portion, this sinful nature that still resides in us, and then the life of the Spirit that resides in us as well, Jesus never had the sinful nature. Jesus was always living out his Father's design, and yet he still died as one who was rejected. That he lived in the midst of these unholy people who were at odds with the Father, and so he became one who was put to death. See, there was no portion of Jesus, sinful portion of Jesus, for the Father to oppose. But rather, Jesus stood as a holy sacrifice without blemish because it was the Father's good will to crush him, like Isaiah 53 says. See, I want to push away from this for a moment and just take inventory of what we're talking about here. Jonah 2 like, shows us that, that God is willfully bringing in obstacles in our life, obstacles in the life of Jonah to bring about holiness and sanctification. It shows us that God can be both for us while he also seems in the providence of our circumstances to be against us. Ever think about that? Joseph looks back on the end of his life and he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. The things in our lives that look like evil, that look like difficulty, that look like suffering, can be used by God for his heavenly purpose. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Author of Hebrews says this. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he chastises those whom he receives. Receive. See, you suffer in the flesh so that your spirit might be brought into conformity with Jesus. It's a place in Romans that we're so familiar with. It's probably on a throw pillow in your house. And it says, you know, God causes all things to work for good. And it doesn't fit on the throw pillow to say the rest of the verse, right? It says, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the purpose of these sufferings? What's the purpose of these difficulties? Your conformity to Jesus Christ. Why is it that you have hardship? Why is it that you struggle? Why is it that you have difficulties at work or or cancer or, or death in your family? Why do these things happen? Well, God is inviting you to take on conformity to Jesus. We look at this verse in Hebrews 12, and look what it says. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. No discipline. No assurance of love. No difficulty, no assurance that God is in my corner. You suffer because the God of heaven loves you like a son. 
You suffer because God wants to take the rough edges. That He wants to discipline the one he loves. He wants to take the rough edges off of you. He wants to take out that little cancerous spot so that he can refine you and renew you. He's disciplining you. He's chastising you because he loves you. And here we would push away from all suffering and say, that's not the Lord's will for me. Notice secondly what he says. You suffer because you are accepted by God. That's what he says. And chastises every son whom he receives. If you suffer in a Christian way and you take on the intentionality of that suffering to be shaped and formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, recognize the the confidence that you should have that he chastises you because he's received you. He, He shapes you and molds you because you're his child, that you are incorporated into Christ. And if Christ was chastised, shouldn't I also anticipate being shaped and chastised by God? See, this morning we press into this to say, Jonah, Jonah's hard-heartedness required waves and wind and a near-death experience. Sometimes in my hard-heartedness, I take hard experiences to learn my, my lessons. Well, it's not always true. There's situations wherein someone might suffer, and it might not have anything to do with the, the hardship or the hardness of their own heart. They might go through suffering like Job because of their righteousness, right? That's Job is, is uh, Job chapter one. We see uh, Satan comes before the throne room of God and he requests that he could afflict Job because God has pointed him out as exemplary in his righteousness. So it's not always the case that God afflicts us in our sinfulness. Not all afflictions stem from this idea that we've done something wrong. I can't look at the person who has been diagnosed with cancer prematurely and say, ah, certainly there's some mark of sin in their life. I can't do that. The math doesn't work that way. But I can in my own heart and life and say, if there's affliction, if there's hardship in my life and in my, my heart and mind, I can submit myself to the Lord's purpose. I can pray. I can search the scriptures. I can orient myself to the Lord who might actually bring relief and might actually do his work in me, right? I'm sure this this morning in this room, there are many of those who are, are, are in stages of various difficulties. In fact, I know of some of you being in various stages of difficulties. This morning is is an encouragement to us that God chastises those whom he accepts. And he doesn't discipline anyone who's not a son. I want to take that before our throne, or the throne of our Father this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now that you would bring about your work in your people. We pray, Lord, that you would do and accomplish your will in us and allow us to respond to you in faith. Help us not to uh, push against the difficulties we face in life, but help us to trust you in the midst of them. Help us to be faithful in the midst of our hardships and to see you as good and kind to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.